Captain! Hark! Bellow! Bid our father, the Sea King, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with punch and slime. To choke ye, engorging your organs, till ye turn blue and bloated with builds and brine and can scream no more. Only when he, crowned in cockle shells, with slithering tentacled tail and steaming beard, take up his fell befinned arm. His coral tine trident screeches banshee like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet. You're fond of me lobster, ain't you? Drunken in a Virginia fence. I see, mate. You're fond of me lobster. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin and Dave. Hello. 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 Follow us on Instagram at Speak All Evil Pod. Hey, breaking news. I don't know if you saw this today, Kevin. Uh, Scream 7, which has not been officially formally announced yet, but is in the works, not going to be directed by Radio Silence. Have you heard this? No, I have not. This is, this is breaking news to me. They're going to uh, executive producer roles. Because they're making a uh, an untitled, as yet, monster movie for Universal. And Scream 7 wants to start faster than they can do. So they're going to uh, exec produce. And right now it sounds like Christopher Landon of Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day to You, and Freaky. Very gonna... happy about that. Yeah, right? Very happy about that. Be curious to see if they go a little over top over the top of the comedy part of it. Yeah, I would welcome that. It's in good hands if you're going to take uh, an already pretty, you know, I wouldn't say generic, but something that's just a formulaic franchise. I think he could give it a nice uh, twist. And good for Radio Silence, just taking that paycheck, right. baby. They've earned it. They did two. That's enough. You do two, you move up. <laughs> exec produce. I think that's a good pairing. Yeah. I love Happy Death Day. It's a great one. I liked Freaky, too. I haven't seen that. It's pretty good. Oh, I was going to, That's that's in the pipeline for me. Oh, good. Yeah, Happy Death Day to you. I just recently rewatched as well. Super confusing as fuck. He got very sci-fi with it. But yeah, right. It's, it's really good. Right. I think that bodes well for the future. I think it's time. You know, I think Radio Silence did a great job. Second one, I wasn't, or the you know sixth one, I wasn't a huge fan of. But still, that sounds fun to me. This week, Kevin has drained the color from our world. <laughs> Two black and white films. Great idea, Kevin. I love this idea. Yeah, I, I don't know why. Um, well, I do know why. I own the second movie we're going to talk about. I actually own on Blu-ray, and I was kind of going through my collection, which uh, I've done like the roller coaster thing where I got rid of all of my movies that I owned, and now for whatever reason, I'm slowly building back up a collection. <laughs> and so this is are. one of those that had survived one of the many purges. And then the first movie we're going to talk about uh, I had procrastinated seeing for quite a while and then finally gave in. Didn't procrastinate a ton. This 
isn't that old of a movie. No. Uh, and was just blown away. But it's kind of one of those movies where you don't necessarily just toss it on for a casual viewing. No. Um, in in uh, my first black and white pick is 2019 Robert Eggers' second feature film, The Lighthouse. As the wavering cry of the foghorn fills the air, the former lumberjack Ephraim Winslow and the grizzled lighthouse keeper Thomas Wake set foot in a secluded and perpetually gray islet off the coast of late 19th century New England. For the following four weeks of back-breaking work and unfavorable conditions, the tight-lipped men will have no one else for company except for each other, forced to endure irritating idiosyncrasies, bottled-up resentment, and burgeoning hatred. Amid bad omens of furious and unending squall maroons the pale beacon's keepers on the already inhospitable volcanic rock, paving the way for a prolonged period of feral hunger, excruciating agony, manic isolation, and horrible booze-addled visions. Now the eerie stranglehold of insanity tightens. Is there an escape from the wallless prison of the mind? Willem Dafoe, Robert Pattinson, on some rock. Again, like I said, I procrastinated seeing this movie because it's pretty long. It's in black and white. It's in a weird aspect ratio. Yeah, um, I forgot and that. And literally is just two people basically stranded, stuck, masturbating, yelling at each other, <laughs> uh, and just going ever more crazy. Hot. Uh, for somebody to have this be their second feature film, holy shit. To get the level of acting you get out of Willem Dafoe, you're not going to get any awards for that because it's Willem Dafoe. To get the level of acting you get out of Robert Pattinson, good on Pattinson. You know, the guy can't comes from Twilight to this, you know, say what you will about now being the Batman, but uh, certainly a, a much more accomplished actor than we would have probably thought when he was a twinkly vampire. Uh, this one, to me, is... Uh, Dave, we talked about this. It is so much more comedic than I remembered it. This this is only the second time I've ever seen it. You're just so enthralled by the fact that it's black and white. It's super intense. Even the slow parts are intense. You're waiting for something fucked up to happen. Um, and so you kind of miss a lot of like very deliberate comedic moments. Even something, yes, even the beginning definitely. of the movie, there's a shot of Pattinson and Defoe looking deadpan into the camera, which they're staring out at the sea. But they're looking deadpan into the camera. I laughed. Uh, and this movie did end up making me... Even some of the scenes that we'll probably joke about are kind of comedic, like jerking off a lot. Uh, <laughs> but this holds up big time for me. Uh, I don't want to get like too far down a rabbit hole for the folklore because there are one billion conversational topics that we could go on. I'll get into a couple, but I mean, I think for the most part for this conversation, look, if you want to go on the internet, you can do a much better job than we ever could explaining it. Uh, the horror in this, very understated, um, and basically it's just, I think everybody can wonder what it's like to just be stuck somewhere with one other person that you've never met for any period of time. Nowadays, that's not something that happens to a lot of us because even if you know even if i was stuck with one of you guys we'd probably still have our phones and we'd have some sort of like escapism could have been a zoom you can run the lighthouse through zoom no yep. problem <laughs> yep exactly yeah. um but anyway i really enjoyed this one uh laughed it is terrifying um dave what'd you think i didn't find it terrifying um i found it to be very manic um i the first time I saw this, I was a little let down, um, but this time I saw it after last week I spoke about uh, 
but was afraid. So when it recommended that, and despite all the bad things I'd heard about it, I trusted this person. So I rented it and I watched it like three times because I rented it and I didn't have anything else to do. And it's like a three hour movie. That's like your full rental period, right? Renting, (laughs) watching it three times. (laughs) It is. (laughs) And it's like, uh, I was in this zone of like accepting whatever crazy thing you put in front of me. I was in a pattern where I wanted to watch movies like these ones you picked. So thank you very much for your picks this week. I was just in that the headspace. Um, so I love this movie the second time way more. Um, all the things that like bothered me the first time were the things I loved about it. I thought it was very, very funny in, in a very tongue in cheek way. I loved how it blurred the lines between like sea mythology and Greek mythology and Christianity folk horror the occult art i thought that was really great i i just was so captivated by willem dafoe's performance in this uh right down to his final moments mostly his final moments he goes out in a big way his accent was a little bit better than pattinson's i thought every once in a while there was just a weird thing that he would just bring me out of it for a second with his accent um, but Defoe was insane. Insane. With it. He's yeah. insane in this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the dialogue. I love how uh, he Robert Eggers went from the witch yeah, to this, which is impossibly thick, like colonial. Right. The the accents and the yeah. the <laughs> vernacular or the phonetics or whatever is just like that's a genius, man. It is. It's great. Um, <laughs> and also, like when you watch it with captions. It's really cool because everything is like, you're, you see all these words that you, ca- you kind of would have to watch it with captions. Yeah. Yeah. You and would then, like go right over it if you, if you didn't see it written in front it's of you. It's like ye and yer. And <laughs> yer. I love this movie. This is so good. Talk about blurred lines. I would say this, this movie blurs the lines between semen and semen. If you, oh. know, if you know what I mean? Hey, yo. The performances, absolutely insane. Willem Dafoe. Man, he is just the greatest, and we've seen him now. We saw him in Antichrist. We didn't talk about um, Shadow of the Vampire. He's great in that. No, what, but what, pretty inc- relatable to, to Eggers now. Yeah, and right. And he's. I think Willem Dafoe is in the new one, right? He yes. has been cast. Man, the guy just is, he can do no wrong, and it's, it's so amazing. Kind of like a, a, a Michael Rooker guy. Never been the leading guy. Never been the box office cash cow. And Pattinson incredible this is a play it's a stage thing it's a two-hander i think the balls on robert eggers to do this movie after the witch is just he this guy recognized his moment you come out you, you had a hard time funding the witch this was actually in development before the witch and he and, and he uh ended up getting funding for the witch first so this got put on the back burner but to come out on a four million dollar budget with the witch make 40 million dollars that movie was financially successful and recognize that that only happens one time in your career. One time you are a breakout and you're you're part of this movement of the of elevated horror with the Babadook and Hereditary and you're riding the wave and they say, okay, do you have a second act? And, and he says, yeah, two guys walk into a lighthouse. That's what, <laughs> that's what we're doing now. No, that's it. This is two guys in the lighthouse. They're the only people in it. Uh, and it's black and white. And I want to do this this aspect ratio. It's like a tall box, you know, for the light. I mean, ah, great pick, Kevin. Thank you. I think the one of the biggest things I was surprised about this week, looking into Eggers, 
is you look at the kind of movies that he has made and you assume that this is probably like an old grizzled vet of the cinema. The guy's 40 years old. I know. So he was like mid-30s when yeah, he made The crazy. Witch. Knocked this out, you know, when he was like 35, 36. Like, right. This that, is something you make I was later. shocked. Yeah. I was pretty shocked. The other thing I never knew, I assumed that this would be a pretty easy... Like, I did remember when I first watched it, like, all of, like, the Poseidon and the Greek mythology and all of, like, that stuff. But I didn't realize that this was based on what the last thing that Edgar Allan Poe ever wrote right. and didn't yes. finish. Right. And and Eggers co-writes a lot of this stuff with his brother, Max, Max Eggers. Eggers. Yeah. Uh, and that that's what this was all. Uh, and you can look up Poe's work. I mean, he died while he was writing this thing. Right. Uh, and it's an interesting concept. Uh, I, would, I would definitely recommend it. It's a very quick read. But I never realized that. Um, but yeah, when you either. think about that, you know, all of the obvious inspiration for this. Uh, and I think Eggers, his short films, before he did the feature with The Witch, I think he did a bunch of Poe short films as well. A lot of the, the criticism I had seen of this were like people saying like, oh, I don't understand it or I don't get it. Uh, it, it to me, it's way more simple than you think. It would be, it's like a nursery rhyme or like a sea shanty where it's just like there's two men in a lighthouse and they see mermaids and it's a tentacles and yeah it's a limerick and it's like way more simple than most stories are right, um, right. and it's like a it, an archetype but I I thought that the way the story was told it takes some getting used to and I think that's what helped me on the second time through is I had reserved myself that this is what I was you're not looking for anything well I mean one. It's kind of like the Shyamalan thing that we've talked about enough, but you have something like The Witch. So when you go into the lighthouse, like not only are you missing the comedy because of the way it's shot and all of this other stuff, you're also like looking for something. Anytime you watch a movie for the first time, you're looking for something that might not be there. Right. And in this right. one, I think what tripped it up is there is a little twist with Robert Pattinson's character that like any yep. Eggers thing, it's not drilled down your throat. You know, everything is very organic, and that may make it a little bit confusing the first time, especially, again, if you're looking for something that's not there, and then you get something that you are never looking for, you're not going to digest that. So I think that's a good way of uh, putting it, Dave, is that the second time when you, you've seen the movie, you're not necessarily looking for things that aren't there, and you just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. Everything comes like a lot more smoothly, including a very chaotic ending. I definitely wasn't looking for as much masturbation as is featured in this movie. There's a whole lot of wanking going well, on. It made me feel better about myself. <laughs> These guys are just getting after themselves around the clock. I mean, you're stuck on a little rock with a lighthouse. <laughs> Two guys. What do you have? Lobster and booze. So you have you have Defoe's character going up to the top of the lighthouse and getting it on with maybe like a... I thought this was a little bit cosmic horror. It's kind of. I thought it was kind of a combo... Deep sea, oceanic, yeah, oceanic horror, and a little bit cosmic horror. I mean, you you, you saw the tail. There's some sort of creature with a tail. I don't know if that was the mermaid come down when when Defoe is up there having his way with himself, and then you know you have the mermaid too. I uh, to me that's that's close to cosmic, and uh, I, I'm glad that Cat isn't here this week because I I knew I learned a new uh, word this week. You get you got are you guys familiar with uh, androphilia? No, I I did look that up. I had never heard of it. 
but I did see that. You know what androphilia is? Dave? I'm sure I experience it, but what is it? Uh, romantic and or sexual attraction to masculinity. Oh, I thought you were going to say mermaids. Not necessarily men, just masculinity. Well, that sounds like, you know, an old-timey kind of eh. way of thinking. Couple of guys in a lighthouse or a studio. Ooh. No, nobody's <laughs> around it. You know, kind of shut in, kind of locked in. No relief is in sight. Arr. <laughs> <laughs> we like uh, each other's lobster. Pattinson finds the uh, the little mermaid figure in his bed. And then, so he's kind of, he's doing it to this mermaid. I would have gone for the hole in the bed where the mermaid <laughs> came from. Um, but instead he masturbates to this little tchotchke. You know, the thing with Pattinson reminded me of um, something in the dirt, something that you pointed out, Kevin, about something in the dirt. That movie had a character who, when he's when he introduces himself, he says that he doesn't drink, and because his partner didn't drink, blah blah blah. And you pointed out how quickly he starts being like the fastest drinker of the two of them. And when I watched it, I just kind of thought that he he was just drinking because of this this crazy thing that happened that he witnessed that drove him back to drink. But I think. You were right. He was just saying he doesn't drink. That was just a lie, right? So the same thing happens in this where initially Defoe is trying to get him to drink with him over dinner. This is what we do, tradition. And Pattinson is saying like, no, I don't, I don't drink. I don't, you know, he has water or whatever. Doesn't take long before he's drinking like a fish. Well, Pattinson, he, he does, he's got a reason that he wants to keep his wits about him. One, Defoe is like the grizzled vet here. He was a, a man of the sea and he's been a wiki. Uh, a keeper of the lighthouse for a while now. Pattinson is brand new to this. It's his first stint. They're alone for four weeks. Right. Pattinson's right. got something to hide. And I mean, I think loose lips sink ships. So I think Pattinson's <laughs> trying to keep his wits about him. And we see what happens as he devolves into, I mean, essentially at some point, they have nothing left except booze. Right. And that's when shit starts really going bad. But yeah, I think Pattinson's he knows better. I'm I'm sure when he was a logger or whatever he was before he became uh, a wiki, that he was probably out there boozing it all the time. Right. Some shit happened, thus he ends up changing you know trades. Probably the last thing you want to do is just get shit housed your first day with this new weirdo yeah. who's making you do all this work and be like, hey, by the way, he's a good boss. <laughs> I, I like. I think he's he's good at getting the job done. I don't know how many I, bosses you've had, Dave. I, well, I've been a boss before, and this is the kind of boss I want to be. <laughs> well, I think that says a lot. <laughs> oh, you want to be, not you want to have. No, I want to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, I "This is the kind of boss I want to have." No, this is the boss you want to be. <laughs> just, uh, you know, he's obviously a kind of a low life. And he's just asserting this power over him, and yeah. and when you know he finally breaks at the end. There's a great interview uh, on your beans, uh, Huffington Post. Yeah, don't. Oh man, I love that part. <laughs> don't spill your beans to me. <laughs> I, I love that sentiment. That's so like down east Maine. Yeah. Don't spill your beans to me. I don't want to hear it. Listen, spill your beans somewhere else. Okay, I'm not your therapist. I'm not your bartender. And then he, he says something about, like, the whole world's got beans to spill. <laughs> yeah, oh, he said, like, your beans are as boring as the next guy. <laughs> That's so good. I'd love to hear another podcast do a take on this and how many things they pull out that, that Defoe and Pattinson say 
that we didn't find weird at all because like spill your beans we've grown up with it right i'd love to hear somebody from like the west coast or something be like what the fuck are they even talking about (laughs) as weird as the dialogue is even for us uh, probably like 30 to 40 percent of it is just weird shit that we grew up hearing yeah right yeah i like uh this kind of horror i like this kind of folklore with like the the mermaids and all that stuff and sirens and uh, it's, they always come with like hallucinations and and uh, I heard the Little Mermaid is based on a folk tale that is actually very dark and the mermaids are like evil, uh, they're like vampires or sirens. Yeah, yeah. Most of the Disney shit is. I'd love to see more of that in this sort of realm, like scary folk horror. Mermaids are kind of like Bigfoot. It's hard to find a good uh, horror movie about them. There is a mermaid horror movie that I started on Tubi. That's not good. I think it's just called Mermaids of Death or something. I don't know. I I thought Splash was pretty scary. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I picked up on this time is you have to consider the level of madness that each of them came to the island with yes yeah so i think like at first you're sort of like taking them both to just be these very trustworthy hardworking salt of the earth or salt of the sea however you want to put it yeah but each of them came to the to this situation with a certain level of madness already and one of my favorite things that happens and i i still don't know the answer to this question there's a lot of times where defoe will go off on one of his tangents or do something and then Pattinson will call him out on it, and Defoe will say, I didn't do that. You did that. Yeah, and, yeah, and I'm yeah. curious. Yeah. Or he'll say, I didn't say that. Yeah. And Pattinson's like, yeah, you said that. Yeah. And he'll be like, I didn't say that. No, you, he, were, you, you were drunk. You said it. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious as to how much of that is, because it gets worse as like the madness progresses in this movie. So I'm curious. I'm sure Eggers has an answer for it, but I don't know him, so I can't ask him. Yeah, that that's the thing that you you don't know how much is they're both going mad, and so at one point they're supposed to be there for a month, and at one point a big a big storm, of course, comes down, and and uh, the storm lasts a long time, and so their their relief ship never shows up, and at that point you lose all track of time. Pattinson saying it's only been one day since they were supposed to show up, and Defoe is saying that was two weeks ago. Yeah, going crazy. Uh, and so you at that point, there's. I think the real turning point of this is after the relief ship has not shown up and the storm is raging and Defoe says that their rations have been spoiled now because the water flooded into the ration room and, and spoiled all their food. And so they have to go get, they say, he says there's more rations buried around the back or whatever. So they dig up this box of supposed rations and it's just a box filled with bottles of booze. Yeah. That's the turning point in the movie. From that point on, you have no idea what you're seeing, who's right, who's wrong, like what's happening. The madness gets worse because there's nothing worse in a situation like this than probably thinking relief is coming. Exactly. They're they're saying like two more days, one more day. It's like when you have to pee. It's not that bad until you think you found a bathroom, (laughs) but you didn't. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm about to piss my pants. I thought it was interesting how maybe Defoe's character was trolling him the whole time about his background because his name was Tom. They're both named Tom, as it turns out. Right. Spoiler. Uh, and, I, and at that point, you start wondering what's real, but the first Tom, Defoe, his retorts to everything are fucking bulletproof. Yeah. Like, every time, like, this, you can't win an argument with this guy. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. that in essence, 
that's what this movie's about is like a guy you just cannot <laughs> win an argument with no matter what you cannot reason with them until the point you just kill them and, and but all he does is like get increasingly more insane like how how do you argue with someone that starts like talking about like Prometheus and you, once somebody gets to that point in an argument you kind of do regardless of your level of intoxication you do just want to sit back and be like Okay. Well, that, yeah, and that's kind of their relationship too. It's almost um, as much as it's like you know, sub dom. It's like father son, and Pattinson's character keeps saying like, "Well, whatever you say, or however you want it." You know, he he's almost like enjoying the uh, the subjugation that he's kind of experiencing. It's interesting. I thought the deepest part of this, and I don't know why it struck me this way, was when he's like attacking him. And he just goes, you're killing me. <laughs> and he stops. Like, immediately. You know what I mean? Because the way they cut that scene, too, yeah. it's like one of the only stylized kind of scenes of the movie where it's all choppy and stuff's yeah, crazy with yeah. the camera. It's like a safe word, almost. And, and, and right. that stops the fight. Right. Yeah. I didn't notice even the second time watching this. Now, Pattinson's having these battles with a seagull. A particularly ornery seagulls like seabird seabirds torturing him and i didn't notice that the the seagull had one eye i yeah. i just read about that after oh, so defoe tells him that you know it's it's bad luck to kill a seabird because the seabird inside contains the soul of a dead sailor somebody that died on the ocean and so the the one-eyed seagull thing that comes around later I didn't make that connection. It took me, because there's just, even as slow as this is and as, as simple as, as it is, there's just, like you said, Kevin, there's so many things to pull out of it. I didn't really get the one-eyed part until, until after. I think my favorite part, the deepest part for me, was the only time other than you're killing me that Defoe shows, I don't know if it's weakness, but sort of the only time that he's seeking acceptance and gets really upset and kind of vulnerable, I guess is the word I'm searching for, is when Pattinson starts criticizing his cooking. Yes. And basically is, says, like, yeah. if I had a steak, I'd fuck it. Yeah. And then Defoe <laughs> just melts down. He's like, you're fond of me, lobster. <laughs> like, that you was... You did it. You like, did it. You said you weren't going to do it. We haven't even done it that much. <laughs> nice job, Kevin. That I'm glad good. you got that one, Kevin. <laughs> that That's one of the iconic scenes of, like, you can just pull up a meme of that on your iPhone. I've been I talking. Did. I've been talking like that all day long. My wife has a broken leg. I was like, Ari, peg leg. And she <laughs> hated you, me for it. They would just go to the podcast. Get out of here. I think you wore it out at home. I was looking forward to more. I did. Yeah, I don't have anything else. <laughs> what if, oh, well, now what if this, what about this though, Dave? What if uh, The Lighthouse starring Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> Get away from the lantern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I live right next to a lighthouse. As well, you do. You, you right. are not the real wiki. <laughs> Kevin is, is coming through with the accents tonight. That's great. Well, speaking of the, uh, living near a lighthouse, one of my favorite things about this is the sound, sound design. Out of this world, it's all foghorns and cellos and weird, just like weird musical noises. You don't even know what it is. <laughs> it's well, we it's were, so unsettling. We were just talking about the black phone before we started recording. Yeah, uh, same guy did the the music for the black phone. Oh no that shit! Did the, I mean, wow. Eggers obviously is one of those filmmakers that brings along a lot of the same people. Yeah. Um. But yeah, uh, Mark Corvin is his name. So he's done a bunch of Eggers stuff, but he just recently Incredible. did the black phone. And do you remember that movie Cube? 
I think it was like late nineties, oh, yeah. like yeah. maybe early aughts. Like yeah. he did the music for the. He has a huge filmography. No but, kidding. But yeah, everything we talked about the cinematography and everything, uh, but the sound design in this is just super organic and just very. Uh, that's probably one of the more unsettling parts yeah. of the film. Yeah, it's the so scene good. where he throws the, um, uh, the bedpans. Yeah. Uh, full of shit into the wind and it goes all over his face. I remind me a lot of Kevin, the way he likes to eat fecal matter. Uh, sometimes. Come on. But he he does. He throws shit into the wind. Are oh, you smell like shite, yeah, that, boy? That's what he tells him. He smells bad. <laughs> He's like twenty feet away in the doorway. Uh, so I have a theory. No spoiler, but. You find out that Pattinson's character maybe has not been entirely honest about his backstory. And that interview that I read in Huffington Post, which is from 2019, it's really great. It's an interview with Eggers, Defoe, and Pattinson all at the same time. And yeah, it's still online. You can look it up. It's so good. But there's a point where they're talking about the the backstory of, of Pattinson's character and the link between the mermaid and this guy that he used to work with when he was a logger, he has this whole story about he was a logger and, and and why he had to quit doing that and why he's here. And there's scenes in the movie where when he's masturbating to the mermaid, he's also, you're flashing back, there's a, a flashback scene to when he was a logger. And it's like a flashback of like a, a, a blonde haired guy, like from behind. It's a little weird. And so yeah. that's cutting in and out while he's furiously masturbating to the mermaid. And, and the interviewer asked Eggers, what's the connection there? And he says, I have the answer, but I'm not going to give it to you. I don't, we're, that's a thing that's up to the, the watcher. So my theory is that his story, even when he changes his story and he tells the quote unquote truth to Willem Dafoe, that is not the story. He's not on the run because of why he says he's on the run. I think he's on the run from uh, a homosexual relationship that he had when he was a logger, and that's why that scene keeps cutting in with the furious masturbation, and that's part of their whole bizarre relationship where he kind of likes this domination, and he hates this guy, but he kind of loves this guy, but, you know, all that stuff. Or just that that's Ephraim, the logger who fell down and all that has passed. It's haunting him. That's his name, probably. Well, no, he stole the guy's name. He says right. that. Well, he took oh, right. it because he right, had right. clean yeah. slate. He wanted a clean no, that, slate. No, that's Ephraim. Yeah, I assume that. Right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the, the blonde guy I thought was, was Ephraim, but you think that they're inv- they were involved. They were involved. That's log, what I log think. Log jamming. Happened. They were log jamming. And <laughs> yeah. that's why he's trying. He's starting a, a new life, not because of his story. <laughs> oh, shiver me timbers. Speaking, speaking shiver me lumber. <laughs> speaking of juvenility, um, Eggers also <laughs> says in this interview that there was a there was an erect penis scene in this movie, and it was like superimposed over the lighthouse, and that everybody just thought it was too juvenile, so they had to cut it. <laughs> yeah, we missed out on some dick. Oh, they pulled it out. <laughs> yeah, I th- well, they pulled it out, or they pulled it out. Oh, oh. juvenile. juvenile. <laughs> well, there is there is a really really cool tie to Maine. <laughs> That I do have to mention. So I know yeah. that we, I said I wouldn't go too much into the, the inspiration and the folklore and all this. Yeah. However, there is an author from Maine named Sarah Orrin Jewett. She was a novelist in, in, in Maine, born and raised in South Berwick. Her house is still in South Berwick and is a museum. So we should probably go check it out. But uh, Eggers, both Robert and, uh, and Max, took inspiration from her writings um, to write the script for The Lighthouse. So. 
Well, and, and what a piece of her legacy this is to be <laughs> talked about on Speak All Evil. Exactly. <laughs> Did you read about, there was also a, um, a, a, a tragedy at a, a lighthouse in Wales. Yeah, that's a cool that story. partially inspired this. That was pretty cool with two guys named Tom and, and the tragedy actually ended up, they changed the law about lighthouses that instead of two guys, it had to be three guys because of what went down with these two guys until it became automated. They got joke, nothing. That's swabbing the cockles. Can't be so shirking her duties. If the lighthouse with Schwarzenegger, I assume Schwarzenegger would be Defoe. Who would play Pattinson? DeVito? Mm. DeVito, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the second pick for uh, the Black and White Horror Week is 2016's The Eyes of My Mother. Francisca has been unfazed by death from an early age because her mother, formerly a surgeon in Portugal, imbued her with a thorough understanding of the human anatomy. When tragedy shatters her family's idyllic life in the countryside, her deep trauma gradually awakens some unique curiosities. As she grows up, her desire to connect with the world around her takes a distinctly dark form. So this one is straight from like the bloody disgusting find, like following the website, seeing a lot of coverage on this movie. It was a festival darling, Sundance, all of that. Um, not sure what it got for a theatrical run, but I was definitely keeping my eyes on this one. And when it oh. did get, I know that was totally unintentional. <laughs> um <laughs> Once it did finally come out, uh, I grabbed the Blu-ray of this. Uh, and I honestly think that maybe I had only seen this one time as well prior to uh, picking it this week. Um, debut, it's about half the length of The Lighthouse. It's a very, very short movie, but very different. Uh, although both movies this week definitely deal with isolation. So yeah. I, I really enjoyed this one. Trent, you mentioned it before we got rolling. Surprisingly, this one, I remember it being fucked up, and then watching it this time, I was like, yeah, whatever. How fucked up can it be? It's pretty fucked up. Huh. This is a very bleak movie. Yeah. Um, a lot to kind of get into in terms of very polarizing. It's a, it, it was a critical darling and very polarizing for, for reviewers and, uh, I'm sorry, for a public uh, reaction to it. Much different than it got at like festivals and from uh, a lot of... Uh, the critiques that happen in the press, but uh, very visceral. Definitely was surprised when I found out Pesci's inspirations for this. I know what I picked up on for some of the movies that it reminded me of, at least some of the scenes. Uh, not what he uh, would, would later say. Uh, but I thought that this was fantastic. It's a great debut by a young filmmaker and definitely uh, more firmly entrenched in traditional horror. Man. This one, my God, this is as brutal as anything we've seen. This is a, oh, man, thank you. Again, I saw this uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was on Netflix at one point. This is on Prime right now, free, or VOD. 
And we should mention the lighthouse is on Paramount Plus right now or VOD. So I saw this and I was like, damn, that's messed up. This is a brutal, messed up movie. And I've always remembered it well, but now seeing it again, it's it's more brutal than I remembered somehow. This is nasty, awful, tough stuff. 77 minutes. They cover 20 years in 77 minutes, and it's masterful. It's just like, okay, here are the important parts of what happened over 20 years, and it's like seamless. It, it works. You know, I would normally think, especially for a, a debut feature film, he... Pesci wrote and directed this for 77 minutes, first time out. I, I mean, I just would think that's it's so ambitious. Usually that kind of movie um, for a beginner or a first timer, you're going to try to cover a weekend. We've talked about that or three days or, you know, 24 hours or something like that. Guy's just like, yeah, we'll cover 20 years. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Classic opening, iconic cold open scene to this movie that then later calls back in a way that I didn't expect it to. You know, I'm interested to hear, I, I haven't seen anything with Pesci talking about this movie. I would say this reminds me of New French Extremity stuff, reminds me of Martyrs, reminds me of that kind of thing. I don't know what he has said, but to me, this is very much in that tradition. And again, of course, black and white makes it really effective. This is, this is tough. This is tough stuff. And the performances are so, so good. And um, the actress, Kika... I don't, Magalias. Kika Magalias. Hasn't really done much and hasn't really done anything that I could really saw after this does an amazing job in this. And she's, she's asked to run the gamut from, you know, every tone that there is a uh, $300,000 budget. Amazing. Incredible. Um, and I did, I, you know, I read most of the reviews of this are good. There were a couple of bad ones. And I was like, you make this movie for $300,000. I don't, how could you say anything bad about this film? Even if you don't like some of the choices, got a short, uh, some kind of theater run, but didn't make any money. I don't know how wide the release was. Uh, and, and this guy's, uh, Pesci's gone on to do a couple interesting looking things. Piercing. You guys seen Piercing? No, I have not. He also wrote and directed that. And he did, um, which I have seen, The Grudge 2020 which I, I didn't like at all at the time. I saw that at the theater. I would be, and it got terrible reviews, but honestly, on the strength of this, because he wrote the screenplay for that grudge, um, just on the strength of seeing this again, I would be interested in reappraising the grudge 2020, because this is just so damn good. I thought that I had not seen this movie when we talked last week, but I had seen this movie. I liked this movie a lot. The first time I saw it, it didn't have as much of an impact on me, and I think... Despite liking it, it would be a hundred times better in color. I think that mm. the lighthouse, all the weird choices that the director made, yeah, was great. Yeah, uh, I think they should have just gone for the four hundred thousand dollar budget <laughs> and just <laughs> turned on the color um, because hey, hey, dude, I love it. But turn on the color. Yeah, <laughs> it had like a you know rural Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing, especially yeah. when uh, the mom escapes. Uh, and gets picked up by the trucker, like that whole part. If that was in color, I just think that it, that would have been such a memorable scene or more memorable than it is. But I did like this movie, especially on the second watch. I like that it has everything. It has like vengeance. It has the protagonist and the antagonist flip-flopping constantly. One thing that did kind of mess with me and I didn't understand the meaning behind it was the random switches between Portuguese and English. Hmm. First, I didn't pick up on it, and then I did, and, and it just seemed kind of random, but maybe that's how 
people in this area speak. So, you know, I, I wasn't sure about that. I think that this week should have been the eyes of my dog because they're colorblind. <laughs> right? Sure. And, and you said you got the Blu-ray of this, but, I mean, it was probably the gray ray, right? <laughs> oh, man. Keep them coming. Um, <laughs> on a roll. But seriously, oh, uh, this also God. reminded me of uh, a girl walks alone home at night. Or yep. Whatever. Also, well, also black and white. Yeah. Also Reminds black me and of white. a Nosferatu 1922. Yeah, come also. on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Frankenstein. A little bit of Frankenstein in there. Yeah, but I, I did like this. This I think it could have been a little bit better. Uh, they had some great ideas in this. Uh, but it was just like one tiny notch from being martyrs or being. So when I hold it, uh, that's the standard I'm holding it to. But it's a very great movie. Goes great with the theme. You pick two like art house, black and white movies that were a great fun watch. This this is your artsiest farsiest week, I think, Kevin ever. I mean, I'm 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 the curveball. <laughs> yeah, you are unpredictable. <laughs> Wild card. I can answer some of your questions. Yeah, and please. I think and I, the Blu-ray did have um, an interview with the director. So okay, yeah, let's Woo. hear it. So a lot of the films that he claims he took inspiration from are like a lot of like the old Vincent Price and like Betty Davis films, okay. so Castle huh. and all of that. But I was picking up more. I think if it was in color, it probably would have given away a lot more of the more recent uh, inspirations that I, that I was feeling from it. In terms of having it be in black and white, he says, you know, that where they were shooting, which you can tell from watching, was a very lush, colorful, yeah. just very vibrant. And yeah. he wanted to, he thought that by shooting it in black and white, that it would really let you hone in on the isolation that Francisca, mm-hmm. our lead character, is feeling. Uh, and honestly, for me personally, I'm saying this. If it was in color, it probably would have looked a little bit too much like X or like Pearl. I mean, is uh, that you a bad thing? Like, no, no, not necessarily, but you know, it does sort of thematically it works and then it does sort of make it stand out. Uh, and some of the criticisms of this movie were, well, fuck this guy. He only shot it in black and white to try to make it artsy. To try to be well, art Yeah, house. which I, I yeah. disagree with. Uh, but, no, that's but bullshit. I, I disagree with that. Yeah, too. some of these, um, don't get me started. I'll save that for later. <laughs> they're the minority. And then as far as the whole Portuguese, so they're from Portugal, they have come to the United States. So they're in some uh, place in the United right, States. Right, because everyone else, mm. yeah, okay, now I get it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so he said, that does, never says in the movie where this is, but he claims that there are one or two clues that you will give it away. Huh. If you think about the mother talks about being a surgeon back in Portugal, and now she's just a, right. a, a farmer's it's wife. It's Maine. Here, yeah, it's Maine. <laughs> it's Maine. <laughs> Everything's in Maine this week. <laughs> Um, and so the switching of languages was also another deliberate call so that you would kind of understand how they are different and kind of isolated. You know, so they're trying to speak right. English, but, okay. you know, they can okay. kind of fall back into Portuguese. So I'm just saying what the director said. I'm not oh, that, saying no, that I agree sense. or that's disagree. Like a, but, that's a be my know. cat move. There's a reason behind that choice. Yes. Interesting. Reminded me of like how I would like to live my life. You know, just stay home all the time. Every once in a while, go out to the club, bring a girl back, say too much. You know, it's keep her in the barn for 20 years. <laughs> what I meant was that date scene where she brings home a, a, a girl from the bar, that was straight out of Henry or the house that Jack built. That was yes. chilling, terrifying, and 
just awful scene to watch. My God, that was just oh. Well, you talk about Kika Magalias, the the actress, and she is in a movie this year, uh, The Girl in the Back Seat. Oh, okay. And I, I believe it, it may be foreign, but it has something to do with um, sex trade or sex trafficking, some, something. Her performance is awesome. Not just, I mean, she has very little dialogue. She speaks very little. Yeah. And her, her facial expressions are often very blank. They don't, yeah. she doesn't emote a lot. <laughs> no. But her fucking body language is so creepy and so yeah. weird. Yeah. You know, that, from an acting performance perspective is astounding. Like when yeah. you watch this movie, you have to focus on, especially where she brings the girl back to her house. Watch the way that she's like moving around. And and this poor girl is just coming back to the bar thinking like they'll have a nightcap and, and probably make out or something. And she's super relaxed and super chill. And Francisca is just so like robotic and like, yeah. here's what I think a human would do with my arms and my legs and I like how she ultimately dispatches of the person the first know, does her does her wrong the first one cold open yeah cold open yeah. is just astounding no but the way that she dispatches and the way that vengeance comes is the very coldest. rewarding I, I think that if the movie was that without her doing all these other horrendous things well, uh, it yeah. would be righteous <laughs> uh, I like that though I like that so you you have the coldest longest we talk about long revenge all the time some of these thrillers <laughs> this is the longest revenge imaginable and the coldest and most painful guy really pays he pays handsomely for his transgression but and, she doesn't think so it's her friend he, well, yeah, there's there's that level too, but and her lover. I, I like how it turns her from being the righteous, and then all of a sudden she's just like, "Got to replace this guy," and then she just starts committing the most heinous crimes imaginable. Where a minute ago she was she was just and she was right. I thought that was an interesting sort of twist on it. This is how you get a man. <laughs> this is how you have a family. Like she's just so out of it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and obviously, it's it's trauma from how deadpan her and her father were when yes. that whole thing happened. Oh, that's that part so was weird. shocking. Yeah. So shocking. Well, I think the whole point is it's called the eyes of my mother. I don't think I think this might be in some of the synopsis of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> mother is killed by right a away. great character right yeah. in the beginning of the movie. The movie really is what happens when you are lacking the eyes of your mother. They make it very evident in the beginning of the movie that she is taking all of her cues and everything from her mother. Her father is, he doesn't speak. He is on the right. farm. He is right. working. He's he is up at, up at sunrise right. to bed. Right. You know, dinner, some TV. Let's watch Bonanza. I'm going to bed. And then even after- her, She's right. learning everything from her mother that's taken away from her. She spends the rest of the movie- trying to interpret what she learned from her mother at a very young age. Right. And by the time she's old enough to be like, well, I guess I should hit the club or I guess I should have a family or I guess I should do this. She has absolutely nothing to go on except for a very limited <clears throat> time with her mom when she was little. And then Charlie that shows up and does what he does. Right. And then this mute father who just walks around the house, he doesn't even respond to her. She tries to talk to him even after the tragedy and he just doesn't answer her. He just like turns up the TV and drinks his milk. My God, so weird. That's interesting. I didn't really think about that aspect of it. I, I was wondering about the, there's like some Jesus stuff in the beginning when 
when she's a little girl and her mom is telling her this like this Jesus parable and there's a shot of the of the Jesus on the cross statue with the crown of thorns and then Franny is the main character she gets pricked by the thorn I I mm. know that's it's Saint, her mother is telling her the story of Saint Francis right so Saint Elmo I thought Saint Francis real real big kind of a big saint I don't know that um, I don't know my saints too good yeah um but his big Patrick. thing was, and the mother's <laughs> explaining this. There's a lot you can read. The mother's explaining he was very much about isolation, living in poverty. Okay. Woke up one day with a stigmata, die, eventually died of like an eye condition. They thought it was madness. It could have been madness. Whoa. But his big thing was living in isolation and living in poverty. He, he okay. really said that that was the true way to be living right. by God, living by Jesus. And they show the Jesus cross, and then she, Franny gets pricked by the thorn. So there's there's like a double or triple Jesus here, because then Franny's going on. She's sort of a Christ-like figure herself, but then she creates these Christ-like figures of suffering in the barn. She's got some person in there just being their own Christ while she's popping their eyes out and taking their larynx out. I think that's one of the last things your mother told you is the story of St. Francis. Yeah. Well, the, the story of St. Elmo is actually, I was mistaken, it was actually like, from The Lighthouse. Oh. Uh, Willem Dafoe's character talks like about Elmo that. Elmo from so Sesame Saint, Street? Oh. No, St. Elmo's Fire. Yeah. Which, well, like, um, which fire? Yeah, Demi Moore, Emilio Estevez, yes. <laughs> Rob Lowe. I thought, I get confused. Saint Molly Ringwald in that one? <laughs> Molly Ringwald is in a new horror movie. On, we don't uh, need to go sure. there. Oh, why, why not? <laughs> No idea what it's called. Kevin, I respect that you own this. I wasn't expecting... I, I didn't... Like I said, I didn't hear about this until it was on Netflix. I, I respect that you own a physical copy of this thing. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Thanks. This got some classic, like, Sundance walkout lore. You mm. always love to see that when the provocateur shows up with the movie and some people love it and some people walk out. You want those walkouts, you know? I mean, I think that when we attended a film festival, did we, we walk out? We walked out, and then the director confronted no. us. Why did you walk out of my movie? That was so terrible. We, were, we did him a favor. Yeah, well, we walked out for the bad reason, which is it was right. just bad. Right. <laughs> you, want, you want people to walk out because they can't handle it. That's what you want. We are just like, you want to go to the pub? Yeah. <laughs> the walkout is interesting to me, and, and here's where I'll fight every fiber of my being to not start tearing apart some of the reviewers of this. But some of the walkouts and some of the bad reviews were like, oh, it's it's just too gory or it's gore for the sake of gore or torture porn. Or Far from it. I'm fine with all that. Most of it's left <laughs> off screen. It's true. This yeah. movie, yeah. kind of like Texas Chainsaw, when it's you're really like, no oh gore, my God, Texas Chainsaw is so brutal. It's so gory. No, it's, it's not. It's a trick. This isn't either. Probably a little bit more so. You do see a little, but Very for the low. most part, everything is cut away. Yeah. There's or, no, or audio. There's almost no gore, but you see the, the aftermath. You do see the results. You of see the some. results of the gore. Hostel does that too. It tricks you. It makes you think you're seeing all this gory stuff, but really you're just seeing a cutaway in the aftermath. The mother is heartbreaking with her slit throat and like the hissing noise she oh can only make God. when she tries to. Uh, and That's why I wonder how the police even show up. Like who is there to to tell the police what well, happened? I think because there aren't that many places, and she probably could write. And she said, I, I, I picked mm. up I picked up this woman with dark hair. She brought me to a farmhouse and there was a truck in the drive. You know, she probably could tell them enough that they didn't have to narrow it down probably too far. Yeah. Right? And there must be also probably suspicion about 
I mean, a guy went missing here not long ago, right? Or well, but he was a traveling serial killer, well, but, so but nobody still, was looking for him. True, still, they but were immigrants living in a very isolated farm. There might no be some people downtown that might wonder why the mother never comes to the store anymore. You know, this is a small town. You know, people disappear even if they're from somewhere else. You know. So on the extras on the Blu-ray, do they say anything about alternate endings? Nothing. I would love for someone just to keep me around like she does her dad after I die. <laughs> There's some. Uh, You've written a song about it. Do you want to talk true. about I it? Want to, I didn't want to bring it up, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's my. It's also in my my will. <laughs> keep There's, me around. There's some uh, some light necrophilia, some light incestual necrophilia, perhaps in this. It really does a lot. We're watching some stuff right now. My God, this Bath might be tub. the grossest scene in it. Yeah, it she's is got her gross. dead dad in the bathtub. Well, <laughs> Pesci has a, uh, a a TBA film right now. That's, I guess in production called Visitation. Yeah, I couldn't find anything about it. No, I'll, uh, yeah, me neither. I will say though, I, I didn't want to to butt in. I did revisit The Grudge. Oh, long before picking this. Yeah, and I loved it. I really? hated that movie when I first. Me too. Saw I thought it sucked. The twenty twenty one. Yeah, and I I know that this is going to turn you off a little bit. If you know the <laughs> other Grudge films, the yeah. American Grudge yeah. films, this one is even more brilliant. Okay. Uh, so he started out with something different, and it may have even may have even been a different story by or screenwriters. But when Pesci really took a hold of it, he kind of folds everything in. Interesting. Uh, so if you know the other ones, and you go in and watch this, and the acting performances are pretty great. It is a great cast. So you're that saying he has this is a with. great franchise that we've overlooked. What the Grudge? Yeah. I mean the the oh four whenever the Sarah Michelle Geller one. Uh, it is what it is. It's, I, I thought it was good. I enjoyed it at the theater. I think it's a, a perfectly fine American remake of J-Horror with your jump yeah. scares and your creepy kids and stuff, a la The Ring and, and whatever. Yeah, so you have... Other Ju- films, not so much, but... You, you have Zhuan, the original Japanese, The Grudge. You have the somewhere around 04 American remake with Sarah Michelle Geller. I saw both of those. I thought they were good. Now, what happens... So there's then there's The Grudge 2... There's a second one, kind of with Sarah Michelle Geller, and oh, she's still in the second one. Yep. Okay. And then I, see that one. I think I don't know if there was anything after that. I think that Pesci's movie kind of only takes from those two. Okay, and I wasn't sure. That's one, what I wasn't sure how many there there yeah, were. Yeah, I only I, saw the first two. It's worth a revisit. I'd be okay, curious. Okay, yeah, to I'm see, more yeah. interested now. Maybe Pesci will be on the show. Oh, well, let's get him. Let's get him on the, the young show. Young guy too. He's young. You know, I like the underdog sequels. I've been going through um, the Howling series. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. You have? Yeah, yeah. And there's some real underrated gems in really? there. Well, for what, depends on what you're looking I've for. I've never dealt, I love the originals, one of my all-time favorites. I think it's three uh, that is almost like um, Knives Out, and it has like Sybil Danning in it, and there's like this whole kind of like dominatrix werewolf kind of thing happening. It's Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, okay. I've always wondered because there's a lot of Howling movies it, and the yeah. reputation is not good. Right, but I <laughs> okay. mean, sometimes it's good to dig through. And a lot of people have been saying that The Exorcist 3 is very underrated. That, I have that on a list. I'm trying to find something to pair that with and I'm, I'm right. trying to do uh, like an overlooked sequel. 
So something mm. where like The Exorcist, obviously one of the best of all time. Exorcist Two, one of the worst movies ever made. So Three was largely overlooked. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's such it's huh. such a good I, horror. Movie. I think that's why The Grudge uh, didn't hit me is because The Ring was so much better, and I just wanted another movie like that. I remember being terrified of The Ring when it first came out. I thought The Grudge, the original Grudge, was pretty scary too, and it ha- had that sound. You know that. That mm-hmm. weird, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've used that for something. What the hell movie did I use that for? We haven't talked about the grudge. Oh, I thought you meant like in real life. No, <laughs> well, I've used I've like, used that like for like something. To. I use that voice. <laughs> Fries with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about uh, Black and White Week, and we did a disservice to the Lighthouse because we did not talk about the cinematographer. We talked about the cinematography, but Jaron Blaschke. Does that movie, he did uh, Knock at the Cabin recently. This one, The Eyes of My Mother, uh, cinematography by Zach Cooperstein. Trent, we did The Vigil, I believe, on the Patreon. We did. And he did Barbarian. Oh, wow, no kidding. Uh, And then the music for The Eyes of My Mother, another great uh, score for this movie, very understated. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, Somebody named Ariel Lowe did Goodnight Mommy. Wow. Wow, these wow. this is this movie is a little more loaded with um, behind the camera talent than I realized. I love this the score to this made me think about Under the Rose, and we didn't talk about the score to that one. The only thing I didn't like about that movie was I thought it had a really heavy handed, overdone um, classical score when it really should have gone the yeah, Haneke route and had nothing. nothing. But yeah. this movie splits the difference. It does just enough, but it doesn't take you out of it. You're never like, what's the score going on? He talks about that, actually. Really? Uh, and how he and uh, Lowe talked about that when they were getting ready to do the score to this movie, that it couldn't just be all these wild strings floating right. around everywhere. Right. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. This is a great one. Definitely. If you haven't seen The Eyes of My Mother, highly recommended. Get ready. Not for the kids. Yeah. Or the parents. <laughs> Not for some parents. <laughs> Next week, two very special guests, Adrian Tsofe and Duru Yujil. We know Adrian as the writer, director, producer, and star of Be My Cat, a film for Anne. He and Duru are currently working on two more films as part of a trilogy that we are very much looking forward to. 